Episode 22. I find their illogic and foolish emotions a constant irritant. And transfer out, freak! I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass, and I'm all out of bubblegum. Cheap, lying, no good, rotten, four-flushing, low-life, snake-licking, dirt-eating, inbred, overstuffed, ignorant, blood-sucking, dog-kissing, brainless, dickless, hopeless, heartless, fat-ass, bug-eyed, stiff-legged, spotty-legged, and now, together by live simulation via the internet, Scott Gardner and Chris Honeywell. Blah, 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 blah. No, blah, blah, blah. Come, bloodsucker. You're gonna have to do your own dirty work now. Do you hear me? Do you? You managed to kill just about everyone else, but like a poor marksman, you keep missing the target. Khan. Khan, you've got Genesis. But you don't have me. You are going to kill me, Khan. You're going to have to come down here. You're going to have to come down here. I've done far worse than kill you. I've hurt you. And I wish to go on. I shall leave you as you left me, as you left her, marooned for all eternity in the center of a dead planet, buried alive, buried alive. Welcome to a less than sober episode of... uh, Two True Freaks. This one is uh, kind of a different one for us as we are going to be talking about the loss of acting legend uh, Ricardo Montalban. He died just a few days ago on January 14th at the age of 88. Probably, arguably, best remembered for his role as Khan in uh, the classic Star Trek episode Space Seed, and then, of course, later Star Trek II: The Wrath of Khan. We'll also talk a little bit about you know some of his other stuff, like on Fantasy Island, and uh, I think people may have forgotten he was also a minor character in a couple of the uh, Planet of the Apes films, and then just other stuff like that, but. Anyway, this episode we will be talking about Ricardo Montalban, and because we're being we're primarily going into you know his his role as Khan on Star Trek, um, we uh, brought in some fellow Trek fans to discuss this with us. So, anyway, as usual, my co-host is Chris Honeywell. Say hi, Chris. How are ya? <laughs> and joining us are. Eric Peterson, known as Green Captain on the CGS Forum. How's it going, eh? Hey. And Lenny Cooper, known as Sea towner one on the CGS Forums. How you doing? 
<laughs> excellent, excellent. We are so glad to have you guys here tonight, and we are ready to talk Trek and just whatever the hell else comes up. So this is going to be just total, you know, no no real format other than uh, talking about uh, Ricardo and then just whatever comes up. So <laughs> I don't know who wants to take it and who wants to to run with it or what direction we want to go. What do you guys think? Do we need to... Uh, well, I'd like to say one thing when you were you were saying master actor, uh-huh. master emoter, and I'll draw. Mm. I'll, I'll tell you, there's a lot, and most people would think I was kind of insulting him, saying he was a, an emoter because it sort of, so, you know, it sort of means that he's an over actor. But he was. Yeah. He was. He was a scenery chewer, just like Shatner. So that's why I think the Khan character is just the greatest because he and Shatner. Their their acting styles together is just oh, yeah. over the top. You know, Kirk's over the top enough, but when you have both of them butting heads and and posturing and doing their thing, it's it's awesome. You know, Khan is the dark, is the evil sort of Kirk. You know, put a you know goatee on him and he's mirror mirror. I, I think so too. You know, I, I just rewatched this episode in in preparation for doing this show, and uh, you know, just the sheer charisma of the guy. No, you know, it's the- charisma. <laughs> charisma. I mean, he is. He's. I mean, he's absolutely overpowering in that episode, and and makes such a good foil for for Kirk. I mean, it's very easy to see why. Um, you know when they when they went back after the first movie and and decided that they were going to do another one and try to you know bring more of of the TV element to a, a sequel, you know yeah. that, that this was the episode that stood out. You know because not only does it have a great big to be continued slapped on the end of it, you know figuratively speaking, but also I mean you, you saw this guy and I mean he was the one that came off as villain you know he came off as wow this is kirk's foil you know yep. it wasn't you know the fop like uh oh what's his name uh i always think of him as uh tony randall from the odd <laughs> right not, right you know, you know who i mean trelane yeah yeah, yeah. Know, it wasn't somebody like trelane or the gorn or something you know it was it was Khan. you know he was able to hold his own with Kirk, you know, Khan in, is in a this- literal. Well, we, we were just discussing in our last Star Trek or in an upcoming Star Trek Monthly Monday, but basically about how Kirk was a throwback, and Khan is literally a. Th- I mean, he's literally Absolutely. from an earlier time, whereas Kirk mm-hmm. is just figured, you know, figuratively from an earlier time. But they're both they're, they're throwbacks, alpha male throwbacks, and Khan is a exaggerated alpha male to boot. Yeah, literally constructed. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Well, let's throw it to, uh, to to Eric and Lenny. Um, wh- what was your introduction to to Khan, basically, as a character? Did you get it? Was it from the show or from uh, from the movie, or, or basically, where did you uh, discover him? Well, for me, definitely the show. You know, I mean, I, I was a Star Trek fan from the late oh, yeah. '60s on, and uh, Space Seed has always been one of my favorite episodes. I mean, he he definitely, as you said, a scene chewer. He pops right out. One of the more memorable characters in in all of the original Star Trek, or even all of Star Trek. And yeah. uh, and I agree with you. It was a great choice to you know to put him to p- take that episode and turn it into a movie. Mm-hmm. And it was the same for me, the show. Um, I, you know, I was more the 70s rerun 
uh, Star Trek child. <laughs> right. But, um, certainly, yeah, same thing, you know, stuck out. Um, just, I don't know, there's something to, even about the way the episode's shot. I, you know, I went back and rewatched it actually this afternoon as well, and I'm just remembering there's so many compared to other episodes of Trek, there's so many like intense facial close-ups and oh, just yeah. glare and glares of, you know, where they don't even need dialogue. And, and I do remember that, you know, watching it as a kid, it's just, it really sticks with you. And, and like you said, I mean, Khan is that, or Montalban is that great a motor and really does hold his own with, with Kirk. So, and of course, you know, when the movie did come around now, I, you know, I've heard a lot of people gripe about the first Trek movie. I loved it. I love um, it. Yeah, and when the second one came, that was just like pure gravy. I mean, it was just like, yes, this is wonderful. So, I th- I think they made a great choice too, and, and of all the people they could have brought back, and I actually sat down right afterwards and started after I watched Spacey and segued into watching Rathacon, and they they really finished perfectly. Yeah, I think I think they did a really good job with it. It's it's funny because when I was watching, uh, um. Space Seed and Wrath of Khan over again and uh, originally when I originally saw when Wrath of Khan originally came out you know to me so much time had passed between that and now that I'm older you know the time period between when the original TV show original Khan episode showed and, and Wrath of Khan came out doesn't seem as long a time period you know it seemed, and uh, it, it was so that so the difference between the way the movie looked and felt and the TV show looked and felt is not as radical as I perceived it then. You know, when, now that I was rewatching it, especially the music, there's a lot of musical cues and themes that are right off the TV show. You know, the right. the. Yeah, yeah. Type exactly. sounds, and uh, there's that sort of, um, and it's exaggerated, you know, in in space. But that sort of guitar echoey types, you know, mm. and uh, yeah, yeah, down, 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 <laughs> type of stuff going on, and and I love it, you know. I mean, that that you see, I I'm I like the I like the first Star Trek too, but Rathacon is my is my favorite i think just the everything about it just meshed in that perfect storm of star trekness you know it had it had kirk running through hallways it had you know two two hams slapping together it had <laughs> spaceships fighting it had all the interplay between all the characters you know mccoy is a grumpy 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 bastard in this one He's just totally the the one scene where careful or Spock tells Kirk to be careful and McCoy turns to him and is like we will be careful it's just like damn he's just trying to pick a fight with with Spock <laughs> at any any juncture and it's just it it feels like Star Trek it's got the music it's got the the story which is basically like they're fucked oh wait Kirk and Spock are actually more on top of the situation than anybody's figured. And it's it's just a grand adventure of of it's basically sort of a reworking of Space Seed where you know Khan is this, Khan is so arrogant about his superiority that he 
that he discounts Kirk and Spock, and they just whoop. They basically whoop him both times. And and yeah, no, I. Oh, well, go ahead. No, I'm just saying I I really agree with you that um you know I I, I like the first Star Trek movie, but it's not one that I overwhelmingly like and uh, and I remember when it came out in the movie theaters you know it, it was good and I was so psyched to get new Star Trek but when the second movie came out that just blew me away I mean it remains to this day my favorite Star Trek movie I, and, uh, yeah me too no, I agree it's mine too it's just it's like you said it hits on all levels you know you got the you got the great scene chewing the Montalban Shatner but then you got just a great plot I mean it, mm-hmm. it's got some cool science fiction elements it's got twists in it it's got just it's just loaded it's a wonderful yeah. movie nice nice it has a lot of attention to the little details that shade in the characters and shade in their aging and the way the way everybody feels and and that's you know Nicholas Myers a great director Scott and I were just talking about earlier today and I was saying I gotta I haven't seen the movie time after time since it first came out but now I, I, I think I want to see it again <laughs> that I is love it. that movie yeah yeah absolutely when I saw that movie I flipped out when I was a kid it was so great you know and he's just he's just <laughs> a very good director and I think you know this movie really has a strong sense of direction and he totally captured the the, the TV he captured enough of the TV show and enough of the feel of a movie and put them together so it felt like an amped up mod you know it, it felt like all the all the old elements were firing up again and you know the first movie the the the, the I think the problem with it is like any mo- movie it was an establishing movie you 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 establish you know you brought the characters back and you had to set everything up so you couldn't have that slam bam storyline that just throws every you know Here's all the here's all your characters, throw them all the all to wherever they have to go, and uh, that's what this one does. You know, it gets right down to it, and 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 it's and another interesting he and Kirk and Khan never occupy the same space in this one. Nope. That was uh, cited somewhere. I was reading that that was uh, uh, Ricardo Montalban's one uh, regret about this movie is that. He and Kirk didn't get to tussle again like they did in in space scene, which is one of the great fight scenes. That's another good fight, yeah. It's almost like they clear in. Well, this is great because we can hop back and forth between space. We can Mm -hmm. just hop back. It it seemed in space scene during that fight that they just took engineering and like cleared it all out, you know? (laughs) For some reason, the floor space seems extra big in that one because they're just flying all over. There's a lot of empty, unused space. So yeah, they that could, good long shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just roll around, take every wall, every every remaining little table. <laughs> and it's so, and, and it's a little bit improbable that the great Khan is just basically brought down by being beaten down by a piece <laughs> by of a metal stick. Yeah. <laughs> well, what is it? He, like pulls it out of the wall or something? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's <laughs> like some control rod or something. It's. A... Yeah, I it's have, ir- it's irradiated. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> what explains it? <laughs> I've, I've, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm giddy with the, with the Kirk fighting because we, we just watched the, um, uh, what is it? Tomorrow is yesterday. Yep. And we just done a, we've just recorded a, a monthly Monday about that, and that was another. So I've seen that one had another just awesome Kirk fight in it. So <laughs> I'm, I'm all full of good, good Kirk tussles this weekend. Well, I, it's great. I guess I'm I'm the odd man in in this episode because 
although I also grew up, you know, like Eric said, watching Trek and reruns in the 70s. I I really don't. If I ever saw Space Seed as a kid, I, I don't remember it. To me, my introduction was uh, with the movie. And, uh, you know, I was kind of, uh, you know, I, I was aware of Star Trek as a kid. You know, I, I did watch a lot of it, but I watched it because, you know, my, my uncles – you know, who were all slightly older than me, you know, I watched it when they were around and they were really into it. But then, you know, by the time Star Trek or excuse me, Star Wars came along, you know, that became my world. So I didn't really become, I guess, you know, a, a, an official Star Trek devotee until Star Trek two hit HBO. And that was when, you know, HBO was new in our house, you know, so it was a novelty. And then Star Trek II, once it came to HBO, I mean, they just played it to death. And I fell in love with it. So I really, even though, you know, like I said, I had seen the show and and liked certain episodes, it was really Star Trek II that that really sucked me into Star Trek. So, you know, that, that movie... Oh, are you kidding me? You you mem- you taped that movie and memorized it. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I could quote it to you. I watched it and listened to when, it so many times. When but, yeah, we were I was doing our fake Star Trek too. When we were doing our fake Star Wars, we ha- we took so many. <coughs> pardon me of of Scotty's quotes from Star Trek Two <laughs> and grafted them into because remember the the Millennium Falcon, whatever the Millennium Falcon was, and ours was had Scotty down in the boiler room. So we would yep. always have sound clips. Scotty, I, sir, do this. I, sir. Yep. And, and I heard those. Yeah. And I heard those two in Star Trek two. And it's just like, Oh yeah, that's right. And there, and I mean, you used to just <laughs> rifle off lines from this movie. Like, cause I would hear them and I'd be like, Oh God, I remember there was, um, I'm going down there. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, I yeah. just, Oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, if I can interject something uh, quickly that I noticed today on with Scotty in Space Seed, just a funny little aside. Um, when they're all being held in the the one briefing room, and they, you know, they're being forced to watch Kirk be suffocated or uh-huh. put into the vacuum in the pressure chamber, they, when they, <clears throat> sorry, when Kirk and Spock gas everybody in the boardroom, you know, Scotty runs out, tries to follow Khan. It's just funny if you watch it quickly. Everybody, the minute the gas hits, almost instantly starts to collapse, including the you know eugenics guy who was behind Scotty. But Scotty, he starts to move, but then he turns around and just punches the crap out of the guy, and then leaves. <laughs> like every, he's, he's already collapsing. It's not like the guy went to grab for him or he anything. Sucker punched. Yeah, him. he literally started to, to keel over, and then Scotty's just like, "Wait a minute!" Well, Scotty's he, a... he stands up and starts to leave, and then he looks like he says, "Oh, this is yours, you son of a bitch!" Belts the guy, and then continues out the door. It yeah, I know. Great. It is great. <laughs> well, maybe Scotty has a little more resistance because he's, you know, he's got a he has more of a tolerance the for the alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> And I mean Scott. I mean Scotty, and and in Star Trek Two, Scott, there's another joke at Scotty's expense where, you know, how are you feeling, Scotty? Oh, better now, you know, Doctor McCoy. And Kirk's like, oh, what's wrong? And McCoy's like, uh, shore leave. <laughs> and Kirk's like, oh, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> so it's like, oh, so Scotty's got a taste for alcohol and hookers. Excellent. I knew it. <laughs> Well, he did his Jack the Ripper, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, too. That's right. <laughs> I love that episode, too. Yeah. But, uh, 
with uh, with Ricardo Montalban, I mean, he just, uh, you know, the like you were saying with the the close ups of his, he he just really, you felt like you were inside the guy's mind sometimes, just because the way he played a scene, just with his face, not even saying things, you could tell exactly what was going on. You know, just like plotting. Shatner, huh? Just like Shatner. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, and I, I think that was one of the, the, the big appeals of him. You can see both of them thinking. You can see the gears working in both of them all the time. Mm-hmm. That's why the dinner scene so great. Yeah, oh, that, yeah. That is my favorite scene by far. I mean, it's uh, you are an excellent tactician, Captain Kirk, hanging back. You know, uh, every, that whole scene is just wonderful. Yeah, it's he's always stuck. And then, and then he always has his his way out. Hit when when if you start to get the better of him, he goes, "I grow, f- Captain. I grow fatigued. I have to end this yeah. conversation right now. I grow fatigued. It's awesome. Yeah, well, and I, I mean, like that Kirk is always, you know, it seems to really be the only one that can really get under his skin, though, because you know, I, I I've always liked the scene where. For most of that scene, Khan is in total control of the conversation, of, yep. of everything that's going on. But then suddenly, you know, Kirk's able to get under him just enough and, and Khan slips up. You know, yep. if it, uh, you know, we offered the world order, you know, and then he realizes, yep. ah, shit, you know. Yeah. Because as soon as he says it, the look on his face is, yeah. ah, you know, I, I yep. slipped. You know, I, I let my concentration lapse yep. for just a moment. Well, and then Kirk is the just like, yep, gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. And you get, by the end of the episode, you really get the feeling that, you know, Khan has grown to really respect Kirk, you know, Every- right down to the final solution of, you know, putting them on a the planet. And he, sure. he gives this sort of satisfied, like, yes, if yeah. you're going to take care of me, that's that's the way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, Kirk actually, you know, says, hey, you know, do you want, you know, do you want a whole planet? To, you know, you've conquered countries, you want a whole planet to conquer. And you can see that they're like. Yeah, that makes sense, you know. That was sort of what they were after in the first place. And you're thinking, and Kirk's thinking, well, this guy is, that's what he's made to do. He's made to take over the ship. He's an alpha male. So he doesn't really blame him. Every It, it starts out, they have that whole conversation where Mr. Spock gets really prissy and cracks everybody up by going, Captain, when... They're, you know, they're talking about Khan, and he's just like, you admire, you know, how can you admire this guy? And he's like, you know, we can admire him and and not like him at the same time. And, well, that's illogical. But by the end of the show, there's a, or by the, I can't remember the exact line, but Spock is starting to appreciate, you know, he, he appreciates Khan's intelligence. And as soon as he starts appreciating his intelligence, you can see Spock's starting to respect him, too. I mean, he's he's a, he's a charismatic, and charismatics always. They, can, I mean, the whole scene where he uh, basically does the whole pimp act on. Um, uh, I can't remember her name. Um, the um, the, oh, the historian, historian. Yes. Marla MacGyver's. Yeah, MacGyver. Marla MacGyver's. Uh, how can I forget? Don't feel bad. Kirk couldn't remember her name either. That's right. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that chick. Yeah. Oh, and Kirk had that great line too, where he goes, "Well, she can finally do something for a change." I was uh-huh. like, "Oh, I love that." <laughs> That's and, a great scene too. You know, like, stay or go, but do so because it is what you want to do. Yeah. How many of you guys wanted to try that out on a woman? Huh? <laughs> there were, well, he did like to? five. That's all. He did <laughs> total. I got married. He did all this. <laughs> pimp, he did all this literal like pimp, pimp 
will oh, yeah, breaking yeah. things all in all in one quick scene. He like breaks her will in one scene, and mm-hmm. even when she takes his hand, he has to crush her down. You know, crush her hand down <laughs> to a kneeling position. Ha ha! Now will you follow me everywhere? Ha ha ha! And it's just so total. And I mean, that scene could be so cheesy if done incorrectly and and especially if it was overdone and Ricardo Montalban overdoes everything but he can, he's one of those people who can do that so that scene I mean especially when I was a little kid that was some pretty intense mm-hmm. pretty intense stuff and like you know now that I was watching it you notice like they were trying to play it you know let's make this Khan as kind of a sympathetic character but once you've seen it already, you see that he's just plotting from the very beginning, and yep. it's it's so incredible. I can't believe the stupidity of Kirk. He's like, "May I look at your ship's, you know, ship's records?" Oh, sure. You just t- here. You can look at them all through here. Yeah, and here's my ATM pin number. Yeah, that's in the nitpickers guide. Actually, that was one of the guy's chief nitpicks. Was like, is this really a good idea? You know, to let him have free reign of the of the technical <laughs> schematics to the ship. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, Kirk's not the brightest bulb sometimes. As much as I love the guy, and he's one of my childhood heroes, he, he does make some just monumental fuck-ups from right. time he's to time. he's smart but impulsive. Love. Yep, absolutely. Well, you know, leaving a race of supermen on this planet to, to you know, do God knows what, you know, and, and just leaving them there, and then, you know, as we find out in the movie, never checking up on mm-hmm. these people, mm-hmm. you know. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, other than just finding their ship in the first place in Space Seed, uh, the majority of the bad stuff that happens in both Space Seed and Wrath of Khan is directly attributable to Kirk. Yes. <laughs> you know, a lot of it is his fault. I mean, he could have easily made a choice or two here or there that would have uh, made things quite different. So. Yeah. Well, that's I, another and thing. I mean, I ethically, still... ethically, they probably should check up on him, you know, every once in a while. But that's another thing I think works so well about Khan, though, is that, you know, over the years I've come to realize that he's not, you know, he's not your cardboard cutout villain. He's not just, he's not out there to take over the world or, you know, some petty, stupid ass thing. He's actually got a legitimate fucking beef. He's been Mm -hmm. stranded on this planet, you know, six months after they were left there, it became a desert planet, worse than Tatooine. He lost his wife. You know, several of his other people died by these horrible bug things in their ears. I mean, by the time he finally gets back, you know, into space and hunting Kirk, I think he's he's got a, a pretty legitimate pissed going. You know, it's not just, you know, I want to, you know, do this because you stranded me. It's like you stranded me and left me there, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I yeah. think that that works on that level of, of you know, a villain with... with Motivations you can actually kind of sympathize with. Well, yeah, uh, I mean, a lot of Kirk's foibles are brought right out into the light in this in this one. You know, I mean, it's pretty much acknowledged that this was a big, you know, big fuck up of Kirk's. You know, Kirk pretty much he pretty much knows it too. You know, and at mm-hmm. the end, his best friend pays for it in a way. You know, yeah. And uh, so, and it's you know, it's 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 uh, I mean. There's just everything catches up with Kirk at once, and this is son, you know, a romance that he left dangling, you know, from his past. You know, his his Kirk pimpedness comes back to haunt him. Every everything just sort of 
come all his uh his chickens come home to roost <laughs> in this one and uh it's it, yeah i can't i just can't stress how well this ep- this episode this movie was written and uh Laird, I love the whole thing. I love the eyeglasses. You know, that he gets the yeah. eyeglasses as a present. And there's a scene where he has to look at the monitor when he's trying to buy time with Khan. And he has to use his glasses to see it, but he doesn't want Khan to see him using glasses. So he's turning around and putting the glasses on and then, like, whipping them off his eyes and turning around, just another minute, Khan, and, like, putting his glasses back on. It's great. And you know stuff like that. I have a feeling stuff. A lot of that stuff is Shatner. You know, I th- have mm-hmm. a feeling a lot of those, mm-hmm. a lot of those characters. You just write their lines, and they can fill in all the rest of that stuff because they're just yeah. completely intimate with those characters. And so there, there was a lot of that in this, this movie. The characters were really feeling like themselves, and it was great. Yeah, I think the one thing that I, I don't. Less, I was less enthusiastic, and it, it actually I, I didn't get a chance to rewatch these before the show, um, but I'm going on memory. But I think the Khan's a little, a little less dimensional in the movie yes. than he is in the show. Oh, he's, he's a nutty bit more as... obsessed, crazy. Yeah, he's he's the... loony. Yeah, so I, I, that was a little thing I was slightly disappointed in. I would say because you know, I, cause like I said, that like going back to like that dinner scene in the first first episode i mean you really had the feeling that he was a clever intelligent guy in, in, in addition to being genetically superior and such and uh here he's a little more well you know you have the whole moby dick ahab uh analogy right that's, that's run through rather Khan. so i mean he's he's obsessed you know and nutty you know and uh, i think also... he's been worn down to his yeah. to his core uh his core oh, shit what i'm well, trying to think of what i'm going like his core well, motivation the, by this the, point. The you know, reason they go, is... the reason they go to that planet is, is because it's especially lifeless. That's the reason they're paying attention to it. Is they're looking mm-hmm. for a planet with nothing, not even microbes on it. And these guys weren't on the planet for six months, so they've been fourteen and a half years, which is weird because his followers seem too old to be kids and too young to be the, re- you know. They should all more be around his age, but that's another story. But you know, they've been <laughs> well, there fourteen, I mean, never, fourteen and a half really years. Sorry. No, I was just gonna say they never. They, you know, of the what I think there was seventy-two remaining right. people. They yeah. never really say whether it's or what the age is spread of of the people are. So I don't know. But I then mean, again, could, they're I'll genetically superior, so they may not look. They may not look as old as they are. So, and but. It yeah, go ahead. Now, sixteen years. Uh, at least the space seed was in '66, and the uh, Rathacon was '82. I don't know if that's the real time frame. Yes, in the no, movies. they were there. They were there. They about, said yeah. they were stranded there for fifteen years. Fifteen years. Yeah, yeah. They, do, they do reference that a couple of times in the movie that it's been fifteen years. Oh, and then I guess if it, yeah, so then he couldn't be more than fourteen. The sun, right? Right, right. Yeah, they, and they were definitely older than like fourteen, fifteen years old. Yeah, but um. You know, so they've been there 14 and a half years subsisting on, I don't know what, you know, I don't know how, remember they said they had like a year's supply, when they dropped them off there, they said like they had a year's supply of food and and stuff, and from that point, you know, they would be on their own, but you know, they're like, ah, well, we have no 
doubt that they'll be able to pull that off. I didn't see 70 people, so maybe they were eating each other. That could be. be. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah they, did, they didn't go... I, I, I was thinking all that they could have done was somehow trap all those little earwig creatures and just they were living <laughs> off earwigs, you know? That's because... He goes, he, here's the only remaining indigenous life form. I, I think it's really a testament to uh, to Montalban's acting that, you know, most of the of the the original Star Trek episodes, um, you know, especially the, the really classic ones, but even some of the mediocre ones, a lot of them have had, you know, sequel stories or, or picked up storylines or something like that. But, you know, with the, with the con thing, you know, it's the only one where they actually spun an, a movie out of the, you know, one of the uh, old episodes, unless arguably you wanted to argue uh, the one with nomad became the first movie, but I, I kind of well, dispute that. It's yeah. just sort but, of an uh, idea, but... but also, you know, I mean, three books, you know, about con, um, which I wish I'd actually read all three. I've read the first one. It was really, really good. I need to pick up the other two and read them. But, you know, there were two books that cover Khan during the uh, the eugenics war that basically give the whole backstory on that. And then there's actually a novel that covers Khan's exile to that planet. And I'm really curious to read that book because that, that sounds like it'd be, you know, a, a really interesting read. Yeah. And then I remember there being a rumor for the longest time that they were in negotiations with uh, with Montalban to come back as Khan, and that rumor carried uh, all the way through the uh, through Next Generation that they were actually mm. considering a way to bring Khan back and have him as a foil for Picard. Which oh, wow. I always thought that would be an interesting. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Lenny. Oh no, I, I was just saying I never heard of it, but yeah, interesting. That would be interesting. I looked today, I, I did a little bit of digging around on the web, trying to find more info on this, and I couldn't find anything. But I know that I read, well, I know that there was at least one uh, article about it in the old uh, Best of Trek, you remember that? It was like a paperback book type of thing that came up, but it was really a fanzine for Trek yeah, people. Yeah, it was like a collection of fanzines that they made into a... I've, yeah, they I've used to have them at like the old, you know, like at supermarkets and yeah. stuff when we were kids. I remember one that was specifically Khan versus Picard, right around the time that that Next Gen was was new. You know, it was within the first couple of seasons of Next Gen, and and this was you know and something apparently that Paramount was actually seriously considering, and then I just never heard anything more about it, but. I think that's really a testament to, to, you know, not just the character, but, you know, Montalban himself that, you know, that they were considering, I mean, that would be some major hoops they'd have to jump through story-wise to figure out you know, how the hell are we going to bring him back, you know? Well, it's strange because just like Shatner, people have gotten a lot of mileage making fun of Ricardo Montalban, <laughs> mostly through Mr. Rourke and Rich Corinthian Leather. And stuff mm. like that. And it's the same with William Shatner. Lots of comedians have gotten, and rightly so, lots of mileage, you know, over making fun of their acting styles. But I can barely think of anything either of those guys didn't do that wasn't good, you know. At least where their, their co contribution to it wasn't that bad well sh you know i'm sure shatner's had a few like movie roles and appearances and stuff but for generally 
he usually is is really good so i wonder how why it gets to, is it just a testament to how their level of greatness that people like to make fun of them because it's not like something painful that everybody hates <laughs> with, no, with either right. of them. I mean, I mean, they painted such memorable characters. It's, you know, how many characters came in and out of shows like this or movies like this and that just got forgotten. Yep. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think it is a testament to the, you know, people tend to make fun. I know I tend to make fun of things that I like more so than things that I forget or don't care about. Mm-hmm. So. Hey, I'm just thinking it's about time to... uh take a little break and uh, we'll be back with some more discussion on Ricardo Montalban Khan Star Trek and actually all things Montalban I know my own needs and what I need from an automobile I know I get from this new Cordova I could ask for nothing beyond the quality of Cordova's workmanship, the tastefulness of its appearance I request nothing beyond the thickly cushioned luxury of seats available even in soft Corinthian leather. Yet it is on the highway where Cordoba best answers my demands. I have much more in this small Chrysler than great comfort at a most pleasant price. I have great confidence, for which there can be no price. In Cordoba, I have what I need. All right, we're back. And uh, where were we? What were we talking about? Montalban being awesome. That's right. Con. I think I was muted. Can you guys hear me? I can hear, I can you, hear now. you now. Okay. Hey, Lenny, are you still there? Yeah, I'm here. Okay, I was just going to say, speak up, man. <laughs> oh. Hey, you know, the you made reference to the book. I remember hearing about the Khan novel. Is it like where they explain why we haven't heard about the eugenics wars, even though we're, we're, we're past 1997 <laughs> or so? It was, it was like a, about a secret secret war or something? Did, did you guys actually read one of those books? I read uh, – well, I listened to rather the first one because I cannot – I still haven't been able to, to pick up the actual book itself. Um, so I listened to the first one and you know, so was, of course it was abbreviated. But basically it was giving the backstory of the eugenics program that led to Khan. And that, that book ended um, – basically Khan was, was – Starting to embrace, you know, his destiny of of being one of these these super beings, but the actual war had not broken out yet or anything. Um, I, I'm going to have to refresh myself on it and then get into the to the subsequent books. But I really enjoyed it. It gave you a lot of backstory on the character and you know his his uh, history and and like his motivations. What basically what built his character, but it ended and he was he was still a young man. Um, but one of the things I thought was really, really cool about it was that it, it masterfully integrated um, Gary Seven and Roberta Lincoln into his backstory in a way that works. I mean, it, it had the potential to come off as, oh, brother, but it, they really did it well, and it, it really worked. Um, but I get the feeling, you know, it, the, the ending of that book 
sets you up for the perfect, oh shit, you know, it's all going to go wrong, you know, because he's not a villain in, in the book and he's not even a villain at the end of the book, but you can see where he's headed. You know, you definitely get that sinister vibe from the way the book ends. So yeah, I, I, I need to revisit those and, and read the, the later books. And then I'm really curious about the exile one. I'm curious about that one because I'm wondering how do you spin an entertaining tale out of a tale of a dude stranded on, you know, just a big sand pile for 15 years. How do you make that interesting? But I think he's going to, I think it's going to work. So I'm curious you know what? What the story actually is with all that? Well, yeah, no, I remember. I I heard an interview. I think um, with the writer. Um, uh, oh, I guess it's Greg. I'm looking on the Wikipedia here. Greg Cox. Uh, Greg Cox, uh, and he did the Eugenics Wars: The Rise and Fall of Kanuni and Singh, and uh, Rain in Hell. I guess that's the yeah. second part. He's written and a lot of Marvel's prose novels as well. You know, like uh, he did, a, I think he did a couple of the Iron Man books, and I think he did a one or two Fantastic Four books and some different stuff. He, he's a fairly prolific writer, but I, I mostly know him for his Star Trek stuff. But what, I, yeah, what I've read of his so far, I really like. I mean, he's he's, he's a good writer. Oh, he did the uh, he did the adaptions, the novel adaptions of uh, of Infinite Crisis and uh, Fifty Two. Hmm. That's cool. But yeah, I, I highly recommend that that first con book. Like I say, I, I haven't made it to the other two, but I mean, I, I have no doubt that you know they're at least as good as the first one. And I, I really enjoyed the first one. I really like the the backstory you get on the uh, the eugenics program and all, and it, it it does make it work. It makes it fit with the fact that we don't know it happened. Yeah, the fa- yeah the f- well, it's not, not so much that it not so much the fact that we don't know it happened, but the fact that you know, our history didn't, you know, of course, unfold the way it was predicted to, you know, in 1966 when this episode came out. But they do make it work, you know, with integrating where we're at with where kind of the, the story is headed. The, the, the two can sort of half-ass marry up. But they didn't, you know, they, they, they integrated modern stuff. But they didn't entirely scrap the established Star right. Trek timeline. So at some point, it's gonna—it's still going to have to diverge from reality and how things really did pan out. Well, it's funny but because he- I was wondering when when I saw when I watched. I, of course, I watched Space Seed first, and when, you know they specifically said the 1990s, right? And, yeah. and I'm like, and you know, I'm like, ah. Ha, ha. And then I wondered how if they were going to ignore that in the movie. I couldn't remember if they ignored it or if they tried to be like revisionist and like, you know, maybe bump it up a few years. But they said late, you know, at one point Spock said something about, you know, a late turn of the century or late 20th century, which, you know, is is the 90s or even like that could be from anywhere from the 60s to the 90s anyway. But so... They didn't try to change it, but by that no, time... No, they didn't. They didn't really start backpedaling on Star Trek's established history of the future until, to my mind, the, the first time was with uh, with uh, the beginning of Next Gen. 
because you know the the con war was clearly supposed to be world war 3 which took place in the 90s but then by the time you get to next gen you know they're they're trying to establish that uh the court you know from the court scene where where Picard is put on trial by Q took place sometime in the mid 21st century you know where where basically they were living post world war 3 so they started to fudge the closer they got to it actually being 1996, they started to kind of play with it and realizing, well, this is all going to play silly if we don't, you know, start fudging the future a little bit. So then they started to play with it. It became a little bit more fluid by that point. But yeah, also I think that in later Star Trek or, you know, in the various incarnations we we've seen, uh, have we seen like early 2000? Like, wasn't there a Voyager episode that took that that was Janeway's ancestor that was around the year 2000 or That's so? That's right. Yeah, it was a Millennium episode. Yeah. That, yeah. So that that you can't have that reality. I, I think not. And and the reality of 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 the uh, whole eugenics war, right. right? Although I understand, I have not seen it myself, but I understand that there are there is a two or possibly three parter Enterprise episode that is supposed to marry up with this con story. So I'm curious to see that. I'm I'm, I'm presently watching uh, Enterprise. Um, I've seen all the Enterprises. I'm okay, trying to remember that. Uh, not all of them were all that memorable, unfortunately. Um, it was one. Um, I could be wrong, but I think Brent Spiner's in it, playing um, Doctor one of Doctor Soong's like uh, oh, ancestors right, yeah. or something. And from what I read somewhere, the the whole thing is supposed to, you know, how Enterprise was anyway. But it's supposed to sort of half-ass marry up with the whole con, um, possibly even integrating uh, Colonel. I think his name was Colonel Green from the episode with Abe Lincoln, you know, because they mentioned yeah. him. Spock, as kind of taking, Spock. yeah, exactly. You know, but he was supposed to take place right around that same, you know, the whole eugenics war era. Uh, now you're mentioning it; it does ring a bell. I, I do. Rem- I definitely remember Brent Spiner being in 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 the in the. Is it in the Enterprise episode? Yeah, I guess it's been a while since I've seen it. Yeah, yeah. see, I, I haven't made it to that point yet, so I'm, I'm curious to see it and, and see how I like it. But uh, I, I think as that show went on. They did try, you know, a little harder to to complement rather than contradict, you know, established lore because they realized, I think, that they were starting to to not just piss off the long timers, but they're actually losing long timers, you know, that they were tuning out. So I think they made more of a concerted effort to make shit match up a little bit better. Well, yeah, definitely the fourth season of Enterprise um, was almost almost every episode related back to. Uh, to the original series. I mean, I like it was, it. and I liked it, you know, I mean, yeah. I, I, I've always thought that was the big shame that enterprise got cut short after four seasons. Cause uh, yeah, I, third- I, I think it's ironic when you, when you consider the parallels between it and the original, that neither one of them got to finish right. their voyage. No. <laughs> I'm sorry, Len, I didn't mean to cut you off. No, no, yeah, just, uh, yeah, I, the, I thought the third and fourth seasons of enterprise were much, much better than the first two seasons. Um, and then, unfortunately, they uh, got cut short, as you said, just like the original series. When it was airing, I caught about, I would say probably about three-quarters of the first season. Then for some reason, I don't know why, I, I tuned out. I may have been doing something in my life at that time. I can't remember. It wasn't that I didn't like the show or anything. I just, for some reason, I I, I just missed it. 
And then I came in right at the end of the fourth, right before they got canceled. And I was like, wow, this got really good. And then, of course, you know, they, they didn't renew it, which really sucked. But, yeah, I like what I what I saw toward the end. You know, I saw like the last four or five episodes of the series, you know, when they, they found the Intrepid and all that. And I, I was really digging it, man. It's a shame it got canceled. I, I thought they were headed in a, in a good direction. Yeah, you had a Vulcan episode, you had um, a Mirror Universe episode, you know, uh, I, I think they, they even explained uh, why the Klingons were all bumpy in there, didn't they? I think I've heard that they, I haven't seen that one myself, but I heard that they did. Oh, I wonder and how I, they did that. It had to do with a disease that was going yeah. through them, and they tried to get a cure, and they sort of, they sort of evolved a little to fight the disease. Oh. I didn't see it, but I did hear they were doing that. And then yeah, it was a good sense. episode. Yeah. I, it was yeah. like a two-part, I remember, yeah. It's something yeah, that I mean, over the years, they definitely fudged that timeline because, you know, there was there was the Janeway episode that you mentioned, but there was also another Janeway episode where they went back into more or less what was at the time modern day. It was either San Fran or, or Los Angeles, I forget. And they went back. That was the one where they met up with, uh, with Sarah Silverman, where she played the uh, – she was like a junior astronomer or some shit. I can't remember really? now. Yeah, she worked at the at the Griffiths Observatory, and she spotted Voyager on the on the thing that she was working on, or whatever. I can't remember what the hell was going on in that episode. It was memorable to me because it was a it was a two parter, and that's where the Doctor ended up getting his mobile emitter was from that episode. They had tracked a, a oh, ship in the future or something like that. But yeah, yeah. Sarah, Sarah was in that episode. It was I did see that. It was pretty cool. And then uh, DS Nine. Or I'm I'm sorry. Uh, was it DS? Yeah, DS9 yes. did the episode where they ate with Gabriel Bell. Yeah. Oh yeah, that was a pretty good one too. But I don't know how that syncs up with the con stuff, you know, or if it does at all. Because that was another one that was sort of a, not really so much a post-apocalyptic, but kind of a, like a dystopian Blade Runner type of future right. that was actually several years later than the whole con thing. So I, you know, again, I don't know how they they sync up if they do. So I think they have played fast and loose with, with that, that stretch of time between, you know, the real modern day between like, say like the 1980s to present day has, right. has been fairly fluid over the years as shit didn't unfold as, the way yeah, that they predicted. It, it almost to. necessarily has to be. <laughs> yeah. You know, since, you know, if you're gonna try, if you're gonna try, that's why. What's that's why it's better to set things way off in the future, <laughs> to the point of where they're not gonna still be playing by the time <laughs> that time comes out. Well, you know, at, at the time when the original Trek was was you know being made, not only do I I I, I very seriously doubt anybody thought you yeah, know twenty no, thirty years later paying any be attention. Watching. Yeah, but also, I mean, you got to remember that syndication didn't exist. Right. You know, reruns weren't the the word didn't exist. So you know, well, I'll take it a step differently. Not so much thinking about the actual time frame of the show, but I I think that's a fine line that the writers have to take because that adds to me a little more impact to the story when. You know, like you're looking at the 90s in Spacey, you're sitting here in the 60s watching the show, looking to the 90s and uh -huh. thinking, wow, this is going to happen soon. And it's one of those kind of, you better be aware of what's going on yeah. in the world 
Because if, if you said it 100 years in the future, people are going to be like, yeah, whatever. Whatever. You know, right? Anything yeah. could happen. That's when the giant crabs attacked. Yeah, okay, cool. Yeah. <laughs> That's true, too, because look how much my, uh, mileage the, uh, you know, James Cameron got out of the Terminator thing. Because, sure. you know, that was set just a few years later as well. And they've had to do the same thing over the time, you know, sort of as we got closer and closer to... You know, the actual actually taking over. And frankly, that wouldn't, ahead. that wouldn't really work now. Like, if you tried to do that movie now, honestly, or Terminator 2 with the whole Skynet nuclear. I mean, you'd obviously they're yeah. making sequels and such, but they'd find some uh, other know, threat. Yeah, there was that. There was that real paranoia around the time that it was coming out. Oh, you know, I, yeah. I remember I had it. I mean, I was always looking at the nuclear clock. And, I mean, you don't have to tell me, man. I lived with a military base in my backyard, yeah. so yeah, I definitely grew up under the threat of yep. uh, you know. I'm I'm just south of Jacksonville, Florida, which is one of, or was one of the biggest uh, nuclear stockpile and targets in uh, on the East Coast. Nice. So. You know the paranoia I'm talking about, then that's mm-hmm. for sure. <laughs> I mean, Scott and I literally just grew up, like, I can tell just by the sound pretty much what what's flying up about, you know, there were so many jets and helicopters and, you know, B-52s and things just flying around our heads all the time. Mm-hmm. It's weird being here, like, I had to get used to not hearing helicopters daily. But that was just the hooch you were drinking in high school, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> the rot. Man, man, these helicopters won't leave me alone. The black helicopters. The black helicopters. <laughs> I've actually got, for another episode, I've got some, yeah, I'll, the weird stories from Fort Drum would be another episode altogether. The Black Ops well, episode. We've gotten way the hell yeah. off topic. And, and <laughs> Poor Ricardo Montalban. Speaking of yeah. Ricardo Montalban, I've been waiting to see if Scott to see if you brought this up and you haven't yet, and I was wondering if if you were going to remember it or bring it up. But do you, you, of course, we've discussed it in earlier episodes. Our uh, fake Star Wars that we used uh-huh. to do almost like a radio show. We used to do little cassettes. We'd script it out, and then and then we'd record all the parts, and you'd sort of hack it together. Mm-hmm. And uh, do you remember we had one one episode of that probably after we'd been doing it for a while one of the later ones with Fantasy Planet? Oh my God, I totally forgot about Aha, that. I wondered if you. Rem- I just remembered it the other day with Mister Snork. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and they all went to. They all ended up going to f- all the characters who were all you know just basically parodies of and. You know, after a while, they were barely even parodies of Star Wars characters. It was just our way of continuing on the Star yep. Wars stories, <laughs> and uh, they all went to Fantasy Planet with Mister Snork. And I can't remember what Tattoo's name was, but there was a tattoo, and the tattoo used to fight with the R two D two character. And that's all I remember about that storyline. I can remember you did a fair impression of, of Ricardo Montalban saying, Welcome to Fantasy Planet. Or That's right. we had I can't do it. I sound like a Russian when I try well, to do it. Well, if we I listen can't. to it now, our voices are probably like three pitches higher, though, you know. <laughs> I do remember. And I let you say that. I do. That does kind of kind of jog a memory there, yeah. Well, you know, along with, uh, for me anyway, um, 
I, I was never much into to Fantasy Island. I mean, I watched it a few times and, and kind of got a kick out of it. And I, I don't remember the Corinthian leather commercial <laughs> at all. But the thing I remember him for the most besides uh, besides Khan was, uh, you know, I was a huge Planet of the Apes fan. I still am. But, I mean, back in the day, I, I mean, that was Star Wars before Star Wars to me was, was Planet of the Apes and, uh, and Logan's Run. And, uh, you know, over the years, I've kind of whittled my fandom of Planet of the Apes down to just the core, you know, the original movie and the third movie. Those are the ones that I, I love. And the, the other ones I kind of write off as uh, they're, they're okay or whatever. But the, in the third movie, you know, this is the one where uh, where Zira and Cornelius um, come it's back to time and, and come to modern day. I think it's L.A. that they come to. Mm-hmm. And during the course of the story, you know, they, they become fugitives and they're on the run and Zira is pregnant and due any time. And Ricardo Montalban plays a kindly, um, I guess he's the owner of the circus. Yeah, like an owner slash ringleader. Yeah. And he takes them in. Armando. Deliver, yeah, he's Armando. Yeah, that's right. And he delivers um, Zira's baby. And uh, I don't know. Should we spoil this? This isn't a very old movie. It is, but it's I don't old know. enough that I, you can pretty much. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. He, what? What? Spoilers. Spoilers. In the <laughs> end, um, they pull a switch. He keeps Zira's baby, who is right. going to grow up to be an intelligent speaking ape, and swaps it for. Um, he had an ape of his own in his circus that had just given birth. So they switch babies. So at the end of the movie, in one of the most heart-wrenching ends, end sequences of any movie, sci- sci-fi or not, mm-hmm. Zira and Cornelius are gunned down by the, by the bad guy of the whole picture, and he also kills the baby. But what they don't realize is that the baby's been swapped. So at the very end of the movie, Ricardo Montalban actually gets the big end scene in that movie where he goes and he says something to the to the baby ape and it's just a touching little moment where he's calling him an intelligent creature and you know how beautiful he is and all that and there's a pan away shot of the baby standing at the cage going mama mama and I love that man that's just mm-hmm. that's one of my favorite movies my favorite moments and and Ricardo Montalban just really came across really nicely as just you know he he loved animals and you know, he he believed in these two. He saw past all the political bullshit that was going on in the movie. To, to well, he's a just, carnival owner. He's used to dealing yeah. with freaks and outcasts. Yeah. So 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 ape people aren't really too much outside, really outside of his world. Or right. And I think he actually liked them more because they were animals, but they were intelligent animals than maybe he he did even people. You yeah. know, and I, I like I like that character. I thought he, it was a really nice portrayal. He did come back for the fourth movie, but I don't really have the nicest things to say about the fourth movie. He's not bad in it or anything, but I thought he, just, he's kind of yeah. given well, shrift in that movie, I think. It's, it's funny because I've heard you mention that, and upon rewatching the whole series, I kind of like I... With the George Romero zombie movies, I wasn't a big fan of Day of the Dead at first, but then it's kind of grown on me to be one of the one of my favorites. Mm-hmm. Uh, Conquest, if if you go back and watch it, thinking of it sort of in the context of a zombie movie, not so much okay. as a direct continuity for the other ones, I actually like it more every time I see it. I, I just think it has a really neat 
it's just the pacing of it or something. It's just the the whole idea of of everything that did spring from that one child, and you know, you're kind of seeing the the fascist you know, weird sci-fi mix of going into the future that leads to it. I, I don't know. I've, I've, I've grown well, to really I, appreciate I'll give it. it. I'll give it this much, is that, uh, you know, it is the last one I can watch. I, I You know, I do... I, <laughs> I can't watch the last one. Battle makes no fucking sense. No, no. It doesn't match up with the timeline. It, it's just... It, it's it's bizarre it's it's almost like a dream you watch that movie after having watched the other four and it's almost like did you know did i dream that was i drunk or something because it just doesn't make any sense at all so at least the fourth one makes sense but i i just i i have a lot of issues with that one too the 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 timeline with the with or not timeline but the continuity with the apes movies started to get skewed um, as soon as they started to make sequels and yeah. so the 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 the, thir- the fourth one is really hard to reconcile with the third one and i love the third one so much that i, I think that's what what kind of kills the fourth one that and they by that point their their budgets you know each one they had to make cheaper uh-huh. than the last so by the time they got to the fourth one and then you know so much of the cast was supposed to be apes you could see that that they were cut in corners because they weren't very believable apes, and so it, it it suffers for those type of things. But uh, I, I don't know if you ever saw any of it, and I, I think it was largely dismissed by by the comics fan community. But um, I don't know. I don't think they're around anymore. But there was a company back in I think this was the nineties called Adventure Comics. Not not anything to do with DC's Adventure right. Comics, but I've it was got it was one a, of those. A, now I remember. I know the series you're talking about. And they did a whole Planet of the Apes run. Mm-hmm. They did a story right near, I believe it was near the end of their Apes comics, because I'm not sure how many issues it went. But anyway, toward the end of however many issues I have, they did a story that was basically a a story in the gutters of uh, Conquest that really filled in a lot of the story and just gave you a little bit more insight into what the hell was going on, you know, in that world at that time. And I remember it being, I wish I could give you specifics. I can't remember a lot of the story now, but I remember just walking away going, wow, that was really good read from a movie, you know, inspired by a movie I don't like very much, you know? So I thought that was very interesting, um, you know, that they, they kind of, kind of made a little more sense out of it or I don't know it was just was, more it was more enjoyable to me there was a you know Marvel used to have a black and white Planet of the Apes magazine and mm-hmm. I remember one of the issues had this really meticulous amazing chronology which attempted to to put together all five apes movies the TV show and the Marvel comics and wow. and they, they noted all all of the different discrepancies and they, they try to explain some of it with uh, time loops and such and uh, it was actually a great work. It's, it's on the internet somewhere. I, while we're talking, I was googling Planet of the Apes chronology. I'm sure you could probably find it. Um, but if, if you're a big fan... Of that series, I'm going to have to... Uh, of that magazine you're talking about, I'm going to have to see if I might have the particular issue you're, you're speaking of because I've got them. I picked them up dirt cheap at some, I don't know, flea market or something years ago and I don't think I've ever read a one of them. Issue eleven. I can see it right now. It's, it's eleven. Oh, yeah, I have. I have that one too. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I have to check it out. Um, of course, a lot yeah, of books. It's very well done. It just um, 
the uh, because there's a lot of discrepancies as you point out, even down to in the second movie they're talking about the time and it doesn't match up with the first movie even you know, so uh, but the, and there's a lot of between I, three and four the thing that really bugged the crap out of me and it and it still does was the, the fact that well, I'm sorry the first ape that spoke yeah yeah exa- yeah about the first well also it, it started with the third one really is that. Uh, Cornelius gives a speech in the third one basically outlining the history of how the ape came to power. Mm-hmm. Well, they didn't know all this shit in the first movie. Right. You know, where did, where did all, all of a sudden right. he knows the whole history of the planet of the apes, but they didn't know any of this before. Uh, maybe told- he was in some sort of ape Illuminati and he just wasn't telling. <laughs> <laughs> you and your damn Illuminati, I swear. You. But, uh, yeah, you know, but yeah, and then like you said, in, in the in the very next movie, um, it goes totally counter to what Cornelius has just told us in the third movie about who the first ape to speak was and and how all that came to play out. Okay, the the issue I was thinking of is issue number nineteen of Adventure Comics: uh, Planet of the Apes. It's uh, it's called Conquest of the Planet of the Apes: A Missing Link to the Original Movie, and it was a really good issue. The art's not so good, but uh, but the story was was fantastic. But maybe in the Terminator fashion, maybe because of the swap, you know, with Armando <laughs> and the kid, maybe it altered, it skewed sure. the sure. timeline, and that explains Conquest. Are you trying to make my head pop? I'll tell yes, you. Yes, I am. Back in those days... And Dark Knight's the greatest movie ever. <laughs> Back in those days, I don't think you had to be as careful with continuity because people weren't able to watch this stuff over and over and over again. Once in a while, you might, but when it first... You know, you might be able to catch, like, on, you know, on TV an all-day Planet of the Apes marathon or something... But when these were coming out, it was pre-videotape and all that. So it was like people just couldn't memorize all those. A few people, I guess, could read maybe novelizations or stuff and stuff and note continuity errors. But I think they could get away with a lot more than they can now. Well, if they read the original novel, they wouldn't know anything about the movie. Oh, right, right. Well, yeah, the original novel is nothing like, the, you know... It was a it was a French author, and then the movie was basically that sort of concept, and then Rod Serling got a hold of it and just did his own thing with it all together. And mm. it was, and there was sort of a there was sort of a similar revelation at the end of both of them, but it was done in a different way. The book the book was good actually. I remember reading the book in in when I was in uh, middle school. What sure, was it, I Pierre really, Bouillet or yeah. Bouillet? Bouillet, yeah, yeah. Hey, yeah. And I remember being really disappointed at first that it wasn't the, you know, that it wasn't the Planet of the Apes that I was used to, but I got caught up in the story of it and was like, well, okay, well, <laughs> at least it's a good story. But I'm sure yeah. there, I'm sure there were like dime store novelizations of all the other books too, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got yeah. Uh, I've got the one for Escape. I haven't ever read it, but I've got it. Every once in a while, at like a Salvation Army or something, I'll find an Apes book. Uh, most of them are based on the television show, right? 
But uh, yeah, there were uh, there were adaptions of of at, at least uh, Escape anyway. But I think there were I think all of them got an adaptation. Oh no, I I'm, I can answer this one because I tell you I was a rap fan. There were adaptions for all five of them. I've read them all. You know, or actually there might not have even been one for 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 Planet Apes. Well, I, I definitely know there was Escape, Conquest, and Battle because I read them. I might I might even have them somewhere in my house to tell you uh. the truth. I've I've definitely got the one from for Escape because I'm I'm looking at it here. I haven't pulled it out. White cover, right? And they're in like a picture frame. Yeah, let me see. I I don't think mine's an original first print because I don't think it's. Yeah, mine is. uh, Oh no, shit! That's for the TV series. This is the one I've got for the TV series. Planet of the Apes number two, Escape to Tomorrow. But I never watched the the TV. Is the TV show worth watching? I I I don't know for sure. I have sort of fond memories for it, but I I just my. Seven-year-old son's a big fan of the five movies, so I bought him that uh, this past holiday season. So Monkey I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I yeah, you're right. It is. It's a white book, and they're in a picture yeah. frame, like a like a family photo on it. Yep. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, the the TV series. I remember I ended up when I was a kid, the TV series. I thought it was kind of cheesy, and I actually liked the cartoon. Planet of the Apes that they did. Oh, I remember yeah, that, that. better, yeah, that was better good, than yeah. the um, the t- the TV yeah. one. All I really can concretely remember from it was um, somebody, you know, the human, whatever the human character in his story was. He had he built a hang glider, yeah, like yeah, a wooden hang that. glider, and I just remember seeing the hang glider. It was like flying out of a cave. And you could see the string because it was made. It was like an Ewok one, sort of. You know, it was like supposed to be made of sticks and twigs and leaves. And it, but you could see the string, a la Condor Man, <laughs> as it sort of just slid <laughs> along. Like Condor it. Man. <laughs> now, I think and, I think the TV show was a lot closer to Battle than any of the other ones. That's stylistically, true. yeah. Yeah, and I and I remember. Um, I used to catch, like, I don't remember the TV show from originally, but then they took, didn't they take all the TV shows and they sort of grafted them together and gave them a name and would play them as movies? Movies, yeah. I've got a bunch of them on my my DVR right now because... uh... Back, I think this was back at Thanksgiving time or thereabouts. They they had an ape marathon on one of the stations. I think it was Turner Classic Movies or something. They they do play them fairly regularly. The, well, the movies, the but is, then once they play the TV movies as well. Is I yeah, I'm get, actually. Oh, go ahead. I'm just, I'm looking at an episode guide right now. There were 14 episodes of the TV show, and then this episode guide lists uh, five. What they call TV movie compilations. Yeah. yeah. And it looks like the first yeah, one is episodes one and three. The second one is episodes two and five. So, yeah, they've kind got of funny names like like Life, Liberty, and the Pursuit on the, the Planet of the Apes. Or something. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've got a bunch of them. I've got a bunch of them on my DVR. I just haven't gotten around to watching them yet. The problem with those damn things is they'll they'll put them on. They they don't necessarily put them on in order, and unless you know what the order is, you're lost. You know, you you don't you know they they just they'll show a random yeah. movie or whatever, and and I don't know which one is supposed to follow which. And I would always get gypped by seeing Planet of the Apes marathon all day, and it would be all of those. You know, it wouldn't be the right. original ones; it would be those, and it's just. Oh. I mean, I'm curious to watch. The the thing to really watch for with those is uh, when they put those on. The the last marathon they did, 
they played the original five, they played the TV movies, but what I was most psyched for is they played a whole bunch of documentaries I'd never seen. Oh, they had, cool. uh, they had like, uh, Back to the Planet of the Apes was one of them. Uh-huh. There was another one, uh, Impact of the Planet of the Apes, which was basically talked a lot about the phenomena of of apes and all the merchandising. You know, I, I think a lot of people think that all this this new well, it's not new anymore, but all this shit where a movie comes out and they get figures and T-shirts and toy you know, lunch boxes and all that, they think that that's a Star Wars thing. It is not. Uh, it owes back to apes. Yeah, man. apes shit. Yeah, with merchandise. Those, those were some of the first two lunch boxes I ever remember seeing and going like, "Ooh, that's a cool lunch box." When lunch boxes were cool, were Star Wars and Planet of the Apes. But Planet of the Apes, well, no, it was Scooby Doo and Planet of the Apes, and then Star Wars came <laughs> along later. But well, I got into. You remember when I was when we were kids? I mean, I was nuts for Mego figures. Yeah. And although I never owned one, I discovered Mego th- figures through Planet of the Apes I'll because be, I'd be putting yeah, a few older Planet- kids down. Huh? I'll be putting a few of those Planet of the Apes Meteor figure pictures up on the garage sale gloat pretty soon. Do you have some? Not no, anymore, I, I don't. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh. I'll have to post a picture on the forums, but uh, I, a couple years ago at a convention, I did a pretty badass Dr. Zayas costume. Oh, damn, awesome. I, I was damn proud of that, so. That is cool. I'll throw those well, up there. Well, so I'm glad I'm not the only one because I'm telling you, my, my wife gives me such a hard time about every time they're on, she just rolls her eyes. But I'm like, yeah. look, those movies are they're great. You know, you got to get over a little bit of the, the cheesy whatever. But they have know. Ricardo Montalban in them. They have oh, to be great. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. One of the greatest well, that- gifts I ever got from a girlfriend was an ape suit. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and Scott, you're thinking we should go to break, huh? I'm thinking yeah, well, I was just going to throw out. Um, who who sent me this link? Lenny, did you send me this? Yeah. All right, we're gonna, I'm going to put this up uh, on on the show notes or whatever when when we post this episode up. But it's a this is great. I'm going to have to read this. It's a total timeline. Uh, Planet of the Apes that that looks like it reconciles everything. You know, with the with the the movies and the TV shows and the animated series and everything. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. Oh, cool. Well, but, before yeah. we go to break. I just want to mention that Lenny has also said one of the coolest phrases, and I wanted to note it at the time, but I didn't want to break his, his, uh, you know, break into his the middle of his sentence. But I just like the line: "I was a rabid ape fan." <laughs> <laughs> it just works on so many different, different, in different ways. I like it. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> I'm a fan of rabid apes myself. <laughs> All right, we'll be right we'll back. We'll be right back. There's a choo-choo in Chihuahua, in Chihuahua. There's a choo-choo. It will chuggling through Guadalajara. That is, if it doesn't rain. On the choo-choo, Papa dozes. Mama's busy counting noses. Though a bull sits smack on the railroad track, no one bothers to complain. As it climbs a hill with a mighty will, hear the whistle drill from low to high. Then the people stir, check the calendar. It must be the 10th of June, or could it be July? There's a choo-choo in Chihuahua, in Chihuahua. There's a choo-choo 
When a bigger train sees it puff and strain, it may offer it a toll. But the Chihuahua Choo Choo only whistles, thank you, no. Every family brings all the household things, and the whistle sings around the lake. We The conductors wink mm -hmm, at the girl in pink and give her a big bouquet. When Papa goes away, there's a choo-choo in Chihuahua, in Chihuahua, there's a choo-choo. Though it blows, it stops, often has to stop, it will get where it must go. That's the Chihuahua choo-choo in Chihuahua, Mexico. Ay, qué bonito es el norte, oígame, qué barbaridad, la gente sencilla y franca, sí, señor. All right, I'm bringing it back. We're back talking Montalban and uh, all all things Montalban. And, you know, we've been sort of neglecting a little bit uh, Fantasy Island, which I know, <laughs> Scott, you didn't watch it that much. I didn't, I, I would watch it off and on, but um, does anybody remember the premiere, whether it was... When I was a little kid, my cousins lived in Long Island, and where I grew up, we only had CBS, but I'd go to visit my cousins in Long Island, and they had all the networks, and I remember going there, and my one uh, cousin, Kevin, was very excited over, they'd seen, Fanta it was, I don't even know if it was a pilot, or if it was like an ABC movie of the week, it was but it was a, kind yeah. of a movie. Yes. And he and was, was a called, much darker character. Yes, people and, uh, in a couple of places, people died. I think people yeah. came to a bad end, and it was sort of more like a Twilight Zone sort of. Like some people G got a little, some people got a little comeuppance yeah. in Fantasy Island too. There Careful what you of, wish for. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly. Had a little bit of devil to him, you know. Mm -hmm. And my cousin yeah. was like, "You got to see this movie," and <laughs> and we watched it, and I, and all the only detail I really remember is there was one character who wanted somebody to be trying to kill him and they were trying so all through the movie people were trying to gun him down and it w he wanted to basically be James Bond and I think he ended up there was some complicated reason why but he ended up sliding down a mountain on a card table and it was really <laughs> and I just remember it being really cool and I remember it being really scary and Mr. Rourke being a th you know a sort of a kind of sinister character and tattoo being, you know, kind of the evil dwarf instead of a cute sidekick, you know. He was sort of a freakish, you know, an impish evil dwarf rather than, you know, his, his you know, his nice little right-hand man. Rather than, the, rather than the jovial impish dwarf that he became later. <laughs> yes. <laughs> He's like the mirror universe tattoo. <laughs> Isn't that kind of the spin that they took when they brought it back with Malcolm McDowell and it bombed big time? I, I don't know it bombed, but that. I never saw it. I remember that, yeah. You could be right. Yeah. I, I never heard nothing about none of that. Yeah. It sounds good on paper, I guess. Yeah, I mean, a, a Twilight Zone-ish Fantasy Island sound. I mean, that's something I would have watched, actually. Did it have, you would did think it that would kind of... You would think it would kind of suck for tourism on the island, though. You know? Yeah. 
you know, the couple people who got back on, oh, you know, I, I, I took the flight here with about six people, but I was the only one who left. Yeah, it was just me. Uh, he said Nobody's really. My... Yeah. Yeah, it had better karma or something. I don't know what he was talking about, but. You know, uh... But they had a couple big body bags in the plane on the way back. I just don't. Yeah. I saw these floaters out on, outside the island. There were always sharks in this one area, just sort of frothing around. <laughs> but yeah, that's exactly that's exactly what it sort of seemed like at, at, at the beginning. You know, Mr. Rourke was just sort of just sort of this crypt keeper, almost. You know, but uh, yeah, that te- yeah, the, I mean, Fantasy Island eventually became more like Love Boat than anything else. Yeah. You know. Oh yeah. And of it's course, everybody show. knows what happened to Hervé Villachez. Although he was in one of my favorite movies, uh, The Forbidden Zone. Forbidden Zone, yeah. Yeah, he plays the king of the underworld in that, <laughs> and gets to grope yeah. the naked queen of the underworld too. There's a lot of, there's a lot of. It's a strange movie. Great songs. That's right, kids. If you haven't seen Forbidden Zone, go out and see it. Yeah, yeah. Danny Elfman. Um, good I was song. just gonna say, didn't Danny Elfman do the yeah, score yeah. of that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, basically, it was Oingo Boingo. It was the. Yeah. It was when Oingo Boingo was known as the tri. I have a friend here in town who was who grew up in like San Francisco area, and he was big into Oingo Boingo and Parliament Funkadelic, and I guess when Oingo Boingo first started out, they were like the mystical church of the Oingo Boingo, and they had like their own little theater building called the Mystical Shrine of the Oingo Boingo, and they would put on these massive shows, you know, with orchestration, and, you know, there were probably like 60 people in the band on a rotating thing, and they would, and, you know, it was this sort of meld of rock and 40s-style weirdness and stuff, and it was sort of Forbidden zone you know, that had yeah. that mini the moocher aspect to it, but with lots of weird art rock added to it, and of course, the Danny Elfman, that sort of dun 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 sound, that, that really percussive. And, uh, yeah, and because it was Danny Elfman's brother who directed the movie. I can't, mm-hmm. Richard Elfman, maybe, mm-hmm. was his name. Or, the, but basically, his brother directed the movie. Mm-hmm. And, uh, it's, yeah, it's great. There's a great version of Minnie the Moocher in it. I if that's Jenna Elfman's father. Yeah, I think it is. Oh, oh, Jenna I never thought of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because Danny Elfman's her uncle. So, yeah. how did we? How did we get to? How did we? Oh, Hervé Villachez. <laughs> I don't know. Of course. That's right. Hervé, boss, boss. the great, the greatest, funniest moment. If you ever, it's probably on YouTube. There was a the Ben Stiller used to have a comedy show, and he great there's show. this there's this great scene where he's playing like this kind of loud mouth like. You can't really tell, like, if he's, like, Italian or Jewish or he's a very Long Island lawyer kind of guy with big rings. And he corners Hervé Villachez in a bar, and he's trying to get him to come over and, like, say lines from Fantasy Island to his wife, you know. Come on, Harvey, come on, say it, say it, say welcome to Fantasy Island, say it, come on, do it, do it, do it. And Hervé's just getting more, doing the slow burn and getting pissed. And this guy's just slowly making it. And I remember seeing that and just, it was hilarious. Like, I tearing up, crying, laughing, funny. And then, like, a week later is when he killed himself. 
Oh, and it was just the weirdest thing to see, you know. And I was thinking, hey, that's pretty good. Hervé Villachez is getting getting some work, and you know, he's actually, you know, he's doing something that's kind of, you know, kind of funny. He's actually, you know, he's acting as himself, and he was, yeah, you know, it, it was funny. It was very funny, and you could see that he understood the humor of it. So it was, he was a crazy guy. I guess he was quite the. Uh, Quite the ladies, ladies man. man. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that's very hard for me to picture somehow. So so you can pretty much imagine like the the nights at, at the you know when the rap parties at Fantasy Island with Hervé Villachez and Ricardo Montalban as the hosts. You know it must have been just ladies left and right. You know now that I think it, it about it, must have been it. like the grotto at the Playboy Mansion. <laughs> See, I've been looking at Ricardo Montalban's listing on on Wikipedia, which you know, I, I only think so much of Wikipedia. I need to look him up on the other thing because you know, IMDb now that I got to think about it, I could swear that he was the villain in at least one comic book movie, and I want to say it might have been the Kathy Lee Crosby Wonder Woman movie. Yes, you guys remember that? Yep. Well, I think you may be right. He's listed as Wonder Woman 1974. Uh, he yeah. played the role Abner Smith, but it says TV. So yeah, yeah, yeah it was well, a TV it was a, movie, t- yeah. Yeah, it was a TV movie, but it was with uh, Kathy Lee Crosby. I loved me some Kathy Lee Crosby. Oh yeah, I liked that when I was a kid, and then I saw it like years later as an adult, and I was like, "Holy shit, this is horrible!" Wow. Yeah, yeah. No, he, was, he wasn't also in one of the Captain oh. America movies, was he? Well, you're writing about Kathy Lee Crosby, Wonder Woman, 1974, right here. Um, he uh, it had Kaz Gar- Garris as Steve Trevor, and Ricardo Montalban is the third billing as Abner Smith. I guess that must have been the villain. Yep. 1974. I thought Good so. Wow. I thought so. I, I, one of my favorite Ricardo Montalban roles, actually, was a Columbo episode he did, where he was a perfect... A perfect foil for Columbo because Columbo's that down to earth oh, sure. guy and he played the arist- aristocratic guy like you'll never catch me I'm too good yeah, for yeah. you and of course he gets his comeuppance that's, uh, and, I'm a big and- Columbo fan and that's just a good episode <laughs> well Columbo's another you know Peter Falk did that ro- made that role just like you know Shatner made Kirk he was mm-hmm. you know he was he was a bulldog he can't, just comes off as being humble and down to earth but his brain is just tearing everything apart and and you know working he's just slowly working the person into his direction until he's got him and then he just sort of offhandedly reveals to him that he's that he's screwed and yeah. so you know yeah the the two of them together put those two actors together that's another you know who's you know watch out every they get. They had every piece of scenery in that whole, you know, show. Probably had to be look like a dog toy at the end of it. By the time those guys were done, I'll have to look out for that one in reruns. I never saw it. Good stuff. Was it you? Somebody was on one of the forums, and they said that as they were finding out that he was dead, that they were watching that 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 episode was on TV and they couldn't believe it because... I saw that too. I don't know, you know who they, they They schedule those things so far ahead, so he's like, they couldn't have known that, you know, this isn't being shown because it was like, oh, let's put the one mm-hmm. with Ricardo Montalban on. 
maybe it was, but probably not. So he was just like, that was a, quite a, that, that, that was the same thing happened to me with, uh, the drummer from, uh, Frank Zappa's original band, Jimmy Carl Black died. And, uh, probably two days after he died or before he died, they had 200 motels on, on TV, which you don't see on TV that, that much. Mm -mm. I don't think I've ever seen it on TV. No, not until that point. Right. Of course, younger viewers, um, might remember Ricardo Montalban in um, you know the more recent he was the grandfather in the Spy Kids movies, of which I I saw the first two. I never saw the the third one, which I heard was awful. But the first two weren't that bad. Well, it looks like his last role, according to IMDb, was the role of the cow in a 2008 <laughs> episode of Family Guy. <laughs> oh, what a way to go out! Oh, I can think of worse ways. <laughs> You know, Adam West is going to go on being on Family Guy. So, <laughs> uh, hey, did you guys know that Ricardo Montalban also played a cow in Family Guy just recently? Really? Do yes. tell. <laughs> I was just informed of that right now. <laughs> I see. So, some somebody was listening to the last few minutes. Said, "What are you talking about, Ricardo Montalban? Did you know?" I said, "Nope," <laughs> but I'll throw that in right now. <laughs> How timely! I actually, I think I remember seeing that. It's like he—it's basically like a throwaway. It's a total throwaway gag. He's in there for you know two seconds as the talking cow, but it—it it was you know it was so. I mean, it was Ricardo Montalban's voice. Although with Family Guy, you don't know because Seth MacFarlane's a good vocal actor. So, uh, just going back to the movie and the show for a second, you have a little continuity error um, that's discussed that um, he recognizes Chekhov in the movie. Okay. Yes. Right? Yeah. Even though, so I, I actually was at a Star Trek convention, uh, I guess in the 80s, and Walter Koenig was a guest, and he, he, he told like this uh, hilarious story explaining the glitch where where he was actually on the ship back in the first season in the bathroom wall episode because he had the runs or something and Khan had to go to the bathroom too and he, he couldn't get in the in the into the bathroom because Koenig was there and uh and that's why he he hates he never himself. forgot him. He never <laughs> forgot him yeah. I, I've heard that story too when, when Chekhov finally comes out of the out of the restroom, Khan goes, I will I will remember you or something like that. So that's why he remembered him later on. Yeah, I've heard that one too. I got a kick out of it. <laughs> well, yeah, what I thought I, I remember thinking that, and I was like, ah, the, you know, I remember thinking, oh, that's right, Chekhov is in this, but he wasn't in because I'd just seen Space Seed, and I'd forgotten like that there was even a specific line of dialogue where you know where Khan's just like, and you, you, I never forget a face, <laughs> and that always, and that always has one of my favorites, and I know this is. I don't know if Scott remembers this, but I always remember when we were kids, he always used to, you always used to talk about when we would write storylines. You always love those moments in a story when you had two characters and a third character, and the third character knows one of the two characters, and the other character's, you know, starting to figure out that these, you know, you two know each other, you know? How do you two know each other, you know? Right. And you were always a fan of that moment of, you know, in, in drama, having that moment. And, and there's definitely a moment of that with what was Captain Tyrell 
Was it, right. Was his name? Yeah. Where Captain Terrell's just looking at Chekhov, and he actually says, how do you know this person? But he's, like, just looking at him for about five seconds, like, what? <laughs> Wait, we're on a random planet, you know, surrounded by these fucked up people, and this guy knows you? <laughs> Which is great. They could have just not, yeah, they could have not acknowledged that. And it makes it a little, even a little more believable to have someone react. Well, going to back it. to those best of Trek novels I was talking about before, I remember one of the articles being, um, you know, they used to do a regular feature in there where people would write in and ask questions about things like continuity errors and stuff. And this one came up about the checkoff thing. And I remember somebody, one of the writers or somebody said that basically they screwed up and it should have been Sulu. And that's always stuck with me mm-hmm. that it should have been. But then, you know, I, I, I rewatched that episode in preparation for this episode. Sulu's not in it either. He's so they would have been right, just yeah. as much of the, of right, the you right. know, quantity of, had they done it with that. So, Well, I always thought, it, you know, it, when I was watching that movie, I was thinking, you know, didn't Koenig and, like, Shatner not get along? Or didn't he not get along with somebody uh, Something weird, but I think everybody got along with Shatner really well. What you... <laughs> <laughs> but there was some weird, there, there, you know, just the way it, it seemed like almost like maybe he had, you know, the you know the way they had to schedule everybody to do their scenes together. And poor Koenig, poor Chekhov spends this whole movie. You know, he gets a few scenes as, as you know, on his on the starship and you know, getting implanted by Khan. Then he's a zombie. And then, like, the rest of the movie, he's just sort of laying... Like, a good chunk of the movie, he's spent just laying on the ground, holding right. a rag to his ear. Like, when Kurt's <laughs> finally, you know, you know, and his son are finally making peace, and David's finally, like, coming clean to Kirk. All the while, Chekhov is just laying on the ground, like, oh, don't mind me here. <laughs> I'll, I'll, uh, I'll just sit this family reconciliation out or whatever but I'm thinking poor Walter Koenig's probably laying on the ground going well this is my part in the new Star Trek movie I like when he uh, when he comes uh, to the bridge way late and you know he has all fucked up and yeah and he kind of sort of has like a stumbling gate over to the to the weapons console i yeah. really like that and i wonder how many people actually catch the fact that he's supposed to you know his inner ear is supposed to have been affected and his his balance is off well he's and also I- had a parasite wrapped around his <laughs> his brain and been controlled by khan and tried to you know who was making him try to kill kirk so he's a little fucked up i was thinking is this guy really competent to aim the laser beams, you know, at this point? You know, I mean, it's nice to and sentimental to have Chekhov back on. Good to see you up here, Chekhov. But really, you know, he's kind of fucked up, you know. Wouldn't it be better to have somebody who has a little, who's aiming something to have their inner ear maybe a little <laughs> more aligned, you know, and, and not be in a sort of zombie state where your, your um, hand-eye coordination might not be at its full... He went down to sick bay and 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 Doctor McCoy had him dewormed, so you know, well, he's all right. That's the thing is, they were also like when once you put these in your head, they they, you know, they wrap around your brain, and then they cause madness and then death. <laughs> but but the, this that's not what happened with Chekhov. It just crawled out for uh, was it did it crawl out because he was resisting it 
Maybe he has like really cruddy ears or something, and the thing just couldn't take it anymore. Yeah, but he didn't even get to the insanity part. He just got, and then that was another thing. I was thinking maybe Khan, maybe Khan had one of those. You know, maybe that's what was making him a little nutty. Maybe he had a brain worm, and he'd gone beyond the brain worm. (laughs) You know, a brain wig, an earwig, whatever they were like, steroided earwigs. I well, think Khan a- was pissed off because he looked like he was 70 and everybody else looked like they were like 25. That's probably what pissed him off. He aged and nobody else yeah, from his, his Yeah, he had a face of rich Corinthian leather, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm serious. Did you notice uh, that? that Most of his Cordoba. followers look like, like they're in their, their, their early 20s, but he's, you know, yeah. he's aged significantly since... Space seed, but nobody else really yeah. looks, you know, anywhere they're all, near. They're all refugees from like the Road Warrior, complete, <laughs> you know, that yeah. got that that sort of post-apocalyptic oh, yeah. '80s look, you know, yep. the way the way people looked when they were post-apocalyptic in those days. Yep, they came over from the Beyond Thunderdome set for that. Yeah, they had sort of like these, you know, ripped-up garments that were sort of ripped-up garments with a combination of like, you know, caveman. And like furry Scandinavian parka look with headbands for the ladies for their with their furry hair, and all the guys with mullets, flowing <laughs> mullets. Hell yeah! It was just a, a recurring fad that made it into the future, you know. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Every few hundred years, mullets come back. <laughs> I'm not well, here. Also, also Montalban had the eyepiece that was also reminiscent of the miners in the the gas passers yep. episode mm-hmm. two. He had those Devo. Yeah, that Devo was pretty cool. Now here here's the big question. I need to know where everybody falls on this side because I've heard two different stories and I'm uh-huh. not sure which to believe. You're galvanizing Con's, us now. Yeah, exactly. I want to galvanize everybody. All right, Khan's chest, real <laughs> chest or uh, plastic. <laughs> Oh, no, I've heard the prosthetic idea as well. I've heard that, yeah. I've heard both, and I don't know who to believe on this, so... I'll tell you what, I'm saying it's a real chest, and I'll tell you why. Because it's the same with Shatner, except Shatner was getting fat in this one. Montalban was not going to get... Montalban was probably working out, but he's got that... When you get that chest like that is the old guy working out chest. It's kind of creepy. It gets that sort of... It's it's what happens to there's two kind of I've noticed this now that I've seen like you working backstage and going to rock shows and you see the rock stars who were like from the from the um you know 60s like um especially notably I'll 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 cite the examples are Robert Plant um uh Roger Daltrey and Bob Dylan all of them were kind of skin, you know skinny guys in the '60s. Dylan wasn't really animated, but the other two were like, you know, lead singer type of guys. But Bob Dylan was still sort of a sex symbol in his, you know, his way. The ladies were, you know, he was in a James Dean sort of way. But now that they've gotten older, they sort of developed this ET chest, you know, this weird little barrel <laughs> chest thing, and like their heads get bigger and stuff. And like all of them look kind of freakish now in real life, you know. They're all kind of they look like grandpa, you know. And you know, um, Bob Dylan from far back looks like James Dean. Bob Dylan, you get up close and is like he looks like ET. He's got an oversized head, 
and you know on this weird frame it's just bizarre and that's what I think Montalban was getting into that into that phase where you know he was keeping in shape but it was still gonna look weird well according you know? to Wikipedia contrary to speculation <laughs> that Montalban used a prosthetic chest no artificial <laughs> devices were added to Montalban's muscular physique and they cite as a reference uh, it looks like an interview with Nicholas Meyer his his body is exactly like his acting just exaggerated <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I've I've heard it both ways. I I I would love to know what the what the official story is on that because I've I've heard both sides of that argument. I, it looks fake as hell to me. That's why. I, <laughs> that's I, why. Yeah. That's why I think it's real. Yeah. That's why yeah. I think it's real because I think if it was fake, they'd be like, "No way, we can redo that. Let's do something about that." You well, in, in some, I mean, <laughs> even you can see shades of it, even in some of the outfits in Space Seed, and and I don't know whether he was just one of those naturally uh, hairless monkeys or whether they purposely made him shave for it. But I think that's probably some of the unrealness of it is that they have him being, you know, this hairless chested yeah. guy. So he's got like the shock of, you know, unkempt white hair in Ratha Khan, but, you know, but otherwise but, but he's got the big Ken, bulbous. But like a, yeah, <laughs> yeah a steroided out yeah. doll frame. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, but, it, but Kurt, I mean, like Shatner, if Shatner wasn't like Doey in this one, if he was in like when Shatner was in Star Trek, you know that it wasn't in the script. Like Kirk has his shirt off, you know, Shatner sure. was just like, let me take my shirt off. And he also had that weird. <laughs> and, you know, I don't want to say that humans could possibly evolve that that fast. But back in those days, like leading men, maybe it was just the leading men that they chose all had that weird you know, that weird sort, you know, they were just different looking than leading yeah. men as, as time goes on. Now people, you know, leading men in movies are younger and they're more sort of just a, diff a different body type. Right. In those days you had the barrel chested, you know, Steve McQueen, um, you know, William Shatner style and which was, and uh, Sean Connery. And they all love to take their shirts off and like and wear those weird pants that go midway up their midsection and yeah, it's true. just you know just this weird that that was the style in the fifties <laughs> and sixties and that was you know and Kirk was pro and I I don't know how old Shatner was when they did Star Trek but he had to be in his thirties right yeah I think so, I think so yeah and so he was kind of young for leading men like a lot of times were like in their prime, like in their late forties to like 60 years old. You'd see these people in movies that probably should have been like a lot younger as far as the character went, but the, you know, it, it you know, the, and, but the, you know, lead, leading men now are, are, you know, the main characters a lot of the times in movies are in, in their twenties. So that was so. Kurt, so Shatner was kind of a really young guy, young leading guy, where he's kind of like when I watched the Star Trek um, Phase Two or Star Trek New Voyages, whatever you want, and the the guys who are playing all the characters in it are really you know they're all in their twenties. Mm. So it's really strange seeing you know, you know Kirk and and Scotty and. And McCoy is like twenty-five-year-old. Although at the at the rate that they put him out, you know, after like five episodes, they'll all be in their late thirties. 
because it looks like they're doing one every couple of years or so, you know. So they'll 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 I have a major studio there. behind them for the for the budget on that. They got to scrape it together, you know. Yep. Well, just wait till the new movie. You talk about your twenty-something original cast. Sorry. Hear I wonder distance. if Rod, Rob, Montalban has a son that they could put in the movie. Hmm. Yeah, you know what's really okay. Oh, go ahead, Lenny. Sorry. No, I was just going to say when I really one of the really good things about Star Trek Two is I think up to that point it was definitely the best spaceship fighting um, Star Trek we'd ever had. You know, compared to the TV series and the first, and beyond the first movie, it's just a, a really exciting movie on that level. Oh yeah, I think, yeah. I think one of the things that for me made it so exciting, just the ship combat, like you mentioned, was the, one of the things about Trek, at least the original series, was that you had that same, you had the conceit of all the ships in space were on the same plane. You know, when you saw yeah. the shop, everything was lined up like they were floating on the ocean. Yeah, you know, they were all, you know, always equal with each other. Or they were, the same. and they were always, they were always the top to bottom configuration was always the same. You know, exactly, they would just be facing each other. One wouldn't be upside. You know, you got to figure sometimes you'd run into a ship that was upside down or right, and that's and that's what an struck angle. me on in the the battle um, between the two and you know between the two ships and Wrath of Khan was that. I just remember seeing the movie and just being amazed. It's like, oh yeah, you're in three. You know, you're in a space where you can do anything. So yeah, of course you're going to be yep. doing these Jaws things and coming up. You know, coming up behind, up behind them. them. Yeah, like and, that. And that's another part where the music is just oh, awesome. It's, it's got beautiful. that old style Star Trek, the horns that, where it's coming. I'm going to put that underneath us when I do. Yeah, this that's how. Uh, that that was where I discovered uh, James Horner. He's, yeah. he's still one of my favorites to this he day. He really took. Yeah, I, I I have to say he on that on that soundtrack. I'm going to actually listen to that soundtrack pretty soon because I was just loving it because he. It really takes all the like Alexander Courage elements and uh, and you know updates them into the new Star Wars music, but it incorporates them, you know. So it's got that overwrought feeling of a Star Trek episode, you know, where the music is really, you know, really lurid. You know, it's just it, it's exaggerated, yeah. just like it was in the TV show. You know, it's there's nothing subtle about Star Trek music. When there's a romantic scene, the music is just syrupy, and, you know. And there's voice, you know, there's women singing in the background and strings. And when it's battle music, it's you know completely. When something funny's happening, you know, all of a sudden this whim, you know, whimsical music yes. comes up. <laughs> well, it's 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 a crime that 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 album has still never gotten the the special edition treatment because it really needs it so bad. Oh, really? Because yeah, the the album that's out there. The See, CD, I was figuring it's that I... still the same as the original album that came out, and it, it it's it's just really short, and a lot of the stuff that's in the the movie is not on the actual album that that was released, and it's such a shame, you know, because. Uh, the whole sequence of the movie where they're on the space station where Kirk and McCoy and Savick go over to the oh, station yeah. looking around and McCoy sees the rat. That music owes back so much to those oh. creepy old episodes, you know? Well, that's the... 
yeah exactly yeah and and none of that stuff is on the album it's really it's it's a real, oh, yeah it really that sucks yeah they they need to to do the special oh, edition treatment on that Hope, hopefully yes, one do. of these days well here's a question for you guys we have the new, you know, the new Star Trek movie coming out with, with like I said, the twenty-something cast. If you did have to recast Khan, if you were going to put Khan <laughs> into, like, if say this movie makes a bazillion dollars and they decide they want to do a sequel to it, and they think, hey, we're just going to mirror the first series and and have Khan, young Khan, in in this movie, you know, for some Little reason, Khan. Yeah. Um, who would you cast? Of, of current, like, known crop actors, Keanu Reeves. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, you took my choice. I would. <laughs> oh wow! I mean, is there anybody currently working who you think could just really pull off that that gravitas of uh, of um, command and power? People may not people may not agree with me and may not like it, but this guy has the accent to uh, to do it. He could he could you know do it with a thick enough accent and. And say if this happens, it's going to happen, you know, let's say it doesn't happen for another 10 years because mm-hmm. I would maybe want to put 10 years of gristle on him. But then again, you can do that with makeup, and that would be um, Antonio Banderas. Okay. Who's yeah. sort of a, a, yep. a, a, a sex symbol actor mm-hmm. like Montalban. He's not as much of a scenery chewer as Montalban, but he could. He's well, done, and he's desperado. He he did a bit. Yeah, and uh, yeah, true. Yeah, I mean he's he's been in a lot of Robert Rodriguez movies, so he's into you know he's done exaggerated roles, and he could probably really and like Spy Kids. Yeah, and he could if you if you put him in the right makeup, and you know you know you'd have to you'd have to take him out of that you know. Um, Oh, what was that guy's name? Fabio. You know, he has that sort of Fabio hair thing going and all that. You'd have to get, you know, chop his hair up and and shave his chest and maybe have him just work out weird parts of his chest <laughs> so it sticks out unnaturally. But he might be able to pull it off. If I was thinking of casting, that would be one of the people I'd think of. Why, did you have somebody specific in mind? Or? No, I didn't. It, it just, it just occurred just... to me. I was just trying to think, you know, if we were playing that game. And yeah. Trying to figure out if anybody could carry the way to roll. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I hate remakes. and I'm, I'm... Malcolm McDowell. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You're on to something. He's, he's, a, he's a small little guy, so I, you wouldn't get the... the, the physical elements so maybe he wouldn't work for that but i think somebody that could pull off the acting side they could pull off the you know ruler of asia and the and the the middle east aspect and all that but i don't know the actor's name but the guy who plays saeed on uh, on lost Uh-oh. could make an interesting but I don't know. I mean, he's kind of small, so I don't know yeah. if that would work. You know, you you might need somebody who actually looked <clears throat> like a genetically engineered Superman. You know, and that yeah. guy doesn't. But but I, I like you know. I think he's a good actor, though. I think he could be menacing. You know, you it, know who would be great it, it, for a for a but it would be on the planet on the planet surviving grizzled Khan. He was. I cannot remember his name. He's he was in. He was just recently in, um, briefly, 
in um, Grindhouse in the first um, preview, Machete. Oh, Danny Trejo, it, yeah. 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 He, he's one of my favorite character actors of, of all time. Mm-hmm. He's just a classic, great, char- good actor with a super face. You oh, know, yeah. For, for playing bad guys or tough guys. You know, he's got mm-hmm. just that ultimate face for it. You guys and know who we're got, talking about? No clue. No. Um, if, a, you know, you've yeah, seen you know him many, many, him. many, he was many in, times. He was in From Dusk Till Dawn. He's in all of Robert Rodriguez's movies. Um, a He's very the biggest, rough, ugliest Mexican, yeah. meanest Mexican, usually biker type of guy. Yeah, and real craggy face. Huge guy. Yeah. Huge tattoos <laughs> guy usually has ta- always has tattoos hanging out and bit droopy mustaches usually and is just yeah his face looks like the surface of the moon and uh he's been in, he's been in a million movies as a heavy you know he's just like um he was like um the the american indian version of him was uh, will sampson who's another one of my favorite um character actors who played Chief Bromden in in uh, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest which is my favorite movie of all time and contains two of my favorite character actors Samson and uh, Scatman Carruthers love Scatman Carruthers oh, yeah. Hong Kong fooey man yeah <laughs> well here's my weird choice and I mean totally not Latin but I was just trying to think of somebody who who can overact well but it, and it comes off as a powerful character and again you have that height restriction but um eric estrada as a matter of fact you're right no i, I was actually uh, <laughs> um jason statham i totally non-latin i know obviously but um you know from crank and uh oh, the one yeah. you know just with properly made up because he's got the stare and you know he is a pretty buff guy, and I'm hearing well, the crickets so... in the background, sir. No, I'm just. I'm just <laughs> I have no idea who that is. And it's it's leading, and it, it just it, it made me think of somebody else who's who's too small, but maybe if you use force perspective or you know hired short actors to go with him. hired sh- real short actors, and he's kind of slight, but you could buff him up into. He's a very but uh, John Leguizamo. Yeah. That could be interesting. He's he's usually I he's one of my favorite character actors nowadays too. Now of course Marky Mark. (laughs) Of course, considering the you know, just looking at some of the casting choices without having seen the movie, of course, because it hasn't come out. But looking at some of the choices in the the new Trek movie, uh, I could see the producers of that going with someone like um, the guy who plays Fez on that '70s show. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, w, the WB version, yeah. sort of. Yeah, uh, that's what I'm afraid of. You know, I'm afraid. But then again, it's what it's J.J. Abrams, so I'm hoping that he has some sort of. A, you know, it seems like, just from stuff that I've seen, from what I've seen of Lost and stuff, that he would at least understand what makes Trek Trek, you know, he's, there's a lot, I mean, there's just a huge amount of hack directors out of there and they love to do, they love to give movies like this to hack, to kind of hack directors, Mm -hmm. you know, um, 
my, my favorite example of a hack director made good is uh, um, Ratner, Brent Ratner. Mm-hmm. And I knew you were going to say that too. <laughs> and, that's and, the first and person that came to my hack. mind. Yeah. And he's actually he's managed to make a couple good movies, but that's just because they were made before, and he just copied it, which was the Red Dragon. You know his Hannibal movie. Yeah. The the Red Dragon. Yeah. That. Um, Manhunter, such a superior movie. <laughs> yeah. And I mean the 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 Hannibal and Manhunter is is almost as good as Anthony Hopkins. Oh, yeah. But they just want you know so it was just a remake, but he was just yeah and and that and they're less of a, you know they cost less. They're, they're reliable. They know that they're probably successful because they bring the movie in under time, under budget, and they work and they kiss ass well with the studio. They work well with the studio. So these guys get the, you know, all the, like, I mean, in in theory, an Alien versus Predator movie could be fantastic, could be very inventive and imaginative you know, even though it might be kind of maybe a stale concept or a forced concept, it could be done really imaginatively, but they don't care about that. They're wondering right. about how much money and how cheaply they can do it. And hire, so, And both of those movies have been, you know, j- jimungous pieces <laughs> of crap. And <laughs> they were there. But the first, one, the, the first one I, like, was over at a friend's. Come on, we're watching a movie. And we watched a double feature of... Uh, Two movies that, um, the the first one I'd heard good things about and was willing to give it a chance and ended up hate, just hating it was Moulin Rouge, and then right <laughs> after that they popped this one and I'm like, well at least I can sit and maybe it'll be a good gory stupid movie and it wasn't even that it no. was just so painful to watch. It was very PG thirteen and very yeah. very uninspired. Lame. And thank you. Thank you for the Moulin Rouge thing because I have so many friends who are like that's just like the most amazing movie ever. <laughs> and the vision ass. is just so I, I the first time I tried to watch it I couldn't it get about thirty minutes. Yeah. And I forced myself through it, and yeah, I was just like, no. I was no, just like, this, this is, is such a this awful. is such a forced, pretentious piece of shit. Yeah. This guy should this guy should <laughs> not be allowed near a camera ever again. He's a fucking. It. It's just it's so forced and like, and it's like one of those things like, I'm whimsical and I'm taking this. It's this bold, colorful approach at this and everything's thrown together and in theory it should be pretty fucking cool but it's not at all mm-hmm. it's really uncool it's making me pissed off and angry right now <laughs> as we speak and I remember <laughs> sitting it with these two friends who were bit like they loved it loved it loved it they, oh it was a movie dear to their heart mm-hmm. and they're two very sensitive young ladies who are very nice you know, but they get upset with strong, upset by strong feelings, and I had to sit through this movie watching it, and I was just like thinking, I want to kill this fucking director. I want to kill this guy. This is what makes, this is what makes humanity deserving of death, is people like this. It's so, it's, it almost struck me as cynical, his like formulation of imagery and and hearing songs that were perfectly good turned into, whatever shite. Oh. Who was Ricardo Montalban in this movie? <laughs> Ricardo Montalban was was uh, actually a fucking badger in this movie. I, hey, and he was sort degrees. of like the Greek. He was like the Greek no. chorus that that, and you know he would come out and sing his bad. I no, yeah, but it could very I'll, well. I'll have bring happened. it around. I'll bring it around. 
the Moulin, <laughs> Moulin Rouge has starred John Leguizamo, who Chris suggested as a possible yes. replacement for Khan. So yes, there's some yes. bearing. <laughs> so this is a legitimate topic of conversation. <laughs> and come on, when have I? I is when since I haven't had to a good chance to get my hate on since we were talking about Garfield too. And that was, <laughs> that was the first episode. But I, I, Bill Murray. I think we killed Lenny though. So there he is. <laughs> he, he's just, he's sitting there rocking back and forth, holding his copy of Moulin Rouge going, make it go away, make it go away. Make it go away. <laughs> no, no, I am not a fan of that movie. You can rest assured. <laughs> He's going, I thought we were going to talk about Star Trek. Fucking idiots. What are we talking about? This musical. <laughs> I just throwing out all my notes. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, on that subject, we have yeah, it's, probably it's, gone <laughs> long. I know we've gone later than I was supposed to stay up tonight. So, yeah. But uh, no, seriously, I want to thank you guys both for, uh, for joining us for this. It's been a lot of fun. And. Uh, Although we tangented like crazy, I, I hope our, our love and appreciation for uh, for Ricardo Montalban shone through. Um, yeah. I, I think it's fair to say that we were all fans of his performance as, as Khan and uh, also in other roles that uh, that he played over the years that that we saw and enjoyed. And uh, he, he will be missed. I, I really I think he was a class act and a, and a hell of a good actor and all that. And uh, feel really bad that that he's gone now. Sure. Last uh, last thoughts, gentlemen. I feel glad. I, I feel bad that he's gone, but you know, I'm glad that he 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 lived to be 88 years old. So that's pretty that's pretty damn good. So good oh, yeah. for him, you know. And, yes. Yeah. I was going to say, it seemed yeah, he definitely seemed like somebody who had a you know, aside from his prolific career, uh, you know, apparently had a great life and it's good, and he always seemed happy in the roles that he was doing and i can't think of star trek without thinking of him really i mean he's almost second to to james t kirk for me uh yep. in that role so yep. yeah yeah sure. he'd be probably the best trek villain ever i mean who, yep. who's who's the runner-up the borg yeah. maybe yeah, yeah yeah as far as like a single villain i, I can't i can't no. think well, of another single if, villain if you think if you think original series too, if you're just oh, sticking yeah. in an original series, it's hard to think of one. Oh yeah, I mean, um, he just jumps out. You know, it's just, uh, he's definitely done what done good by us Trek fans. I mean, in the original series, I think the only other single, you know, single person you could think of as a as a character would be pretty friggin' weak. In my opinion, would be like Harry Mudd, who I never <laughs> liked, right. He's like a recurring yep. character. No, I mean I do laugh at it because it's it, I, he's I never liked yeah. him, but he was a yeah exactly he was he you know Khan was like Kirk's Lex Luthor, yeah. whereas uh, uh, Harry Mudd was Khan's Mixelplick, you know? Yeah, he, yeah, he was a foil. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, so he wasn't I, a villain as much of a yeah. Yeah, he was foil. he was Batmite, you know. He was the right. in the entrance, you know, the the kazoo or whatever. But uh, the great kazoo. <laughs> yeah, I think definitely that. Well, you know, not only was 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 Khan Lex Luthor, but he was like super Lex Luthor. He was like mm -hmm. a Lex Luthor that could also kick his ass, you know. So th I think that's where he he makes such a great character. You know, he's he's got just as much 
force of character as as uh, as Kirk, but then he's also able to deal with him on a physical level, which you don't get that a lot with uh, no, with Kirk. these kinds of things. You know, you you take your uh, you know your Superman and your Lex Luthor, or your Joker and your Batman, or uh, or James Bond and Blofeld. You know, none of those villains can can necessarily stand up to the hero on a physical level, but mm-hmm. Khan is actually. You know, superior to to Kirk on the physical level. So I mean, that's pretty that's pretty rare for that that hero villain, you know, dynamic. I think. Yeah, but Kirk had to beat him with a steel pipe. <laughs> he cheated. He beat him with a monkey wrench. Yeah, exactly. He had to pull some sort of thing out of the wall and whack him over the back about fifty times in order to subdue him. But hey, you know, whatever works. You know, actually, it just occurred to me. Maybe the reason he was able, Kirk was able to beat Khan um, in Space Seed. Was it was one of the few episodes that someone got more action than Kirk? Oh yeah, <laughs> maybe maybe it was that pent up. I was supposed to bone that redhead. <laughs> yeah, really. She was supposed to be doing uh, you know charcoal drawings of me and not him. You know what's the what's the problem with that? Feel the rage of my blue balls. <laughs> 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 All right, all right, guys. Seriously, thanks for joining us for the episode. I've had a lot of fun. We're definitely going to have to get you guys back in because uh, we'll be we'll be doing more straight uh, episode reviews, you know, old fashioned episode reviews than than just a general. This was more of just a general discussion. So we'll get you back to do uh, when we do the regular episode. Oh, for the sure. The next time an actor dies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or or the next time one of them drops off, which. Sadly, might not be all that much longer. I mean, these these guys are getting up there. So yeah, they're no spring chickens. Yeah, that's that's sad. Yeah. Well, I, well, I, it's been a pleasure. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Oh, any any time, any time. Visit our website at twotruefreaks.libsyn.com where you can download all of our episodes and find our forum to openly and freely discuss topics from this and all other episodes with us and your fellow listeners. twotruefreaks.libsyn.com is spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libsyn, which is L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. You can email us directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. And thanks for listening to the Two True Freaks podcast. Two True Freaks has been brought to you today by Damanzo Corps of Milan, Italy, and by the letters F and U. No, you can't get away from hell's heart. I stab at thee. For hate's sake, I speak.